0: to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite, history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. It's been, I think, two weeks since we've done an episode, maybe. It's
1: been longer. Maybe three? Four, I think.
0: It's been four weeks since we've done an episode? Yeah. Oh, geez. Wow. That's crazy. That
1: time really got away from us.
0: That's insane. Sorry about that, Midnight Myth listeners. We have been busy to say the least, but we always had this episode kind of in the works. We didn't know when we were going to do it, and we are excited to talk about it because it feels like it has been an eternity (laughs) since we have done an episode, and it feels like we could have all lived for forever, and so we must emerge from our cocoon, our sleeping egg with lots of cosmic energy to bring some more amazing Midnight Myth content. I gotta say a little bit of a preamble to what episode we're going to do here. We're going to be doing Marvel's Eternals. And I'm very, very pumped to talk about this movie and give the Midnight Myth treatment. One of the catalysts for us deciding to do this was we were fortunate enough to be invited for the second time onto the YouTube channel of Geek Salad Radio and to do a movie review with them. And they were kind enough to let us choose the movie. And we were like, let's do The Eternals. Pardon me, let's just do Eternals. It is not The Eternals. Yeah, we're going
1: to try to keep that straight this episode.
0: It's really hard for me to not put the the in front of it, but it's just Marvel's Eternals. And we had such a great time. Thank you so much. Folks, if you like our podcast, let me plug Geek Salad. They do all things geek, just really entertaining, fun, engaging, smart conversation about everything from movies from different decades to music, etc. You name it, they talk about all things geek. And after doing that review, Laurel and I were like, maybe we should do a whole midnight myth on Marvel's Eternals. I feel that Eternals often is the quote-unquote redheaded stepchild of the MCU. It has a really low Rotten Tomatoes score. It did not have a smashing, amazing box office success like we've come to expect from all Marvel movies, and I feel as if it gets the short end of the stick, and in particular for the Midnight Myth project, which is about universal themes in storytelling, understanding the mythological, philosophical, and historical roots of storytelling. This movie is a literal treasure trove. More things than we could even possibly hope to discuss in one episode. But here we are. We're doing Eternals.
1: Yeah, and we are doing our second outing at Eternals, too, because we had more to talk about after spending an hour or so with Geek Salad. Just want to say again, Mike and Andy over at Geek Salad are fantastic people, And supremely knowledgeable and going in and talking about a comic book property was almost intimidating to me because they know so much, but that led to a really fruitful discussion. You should head there. We'll put a link in the show notes to hear things about our actual thoughts on the movie, our review of the movie, things that we thought worked really well, didn't work well some of our discussion on the themes, and Derek spends some time on a soapbox about presentations of the ancient Near East in cinema, and it is glorious. So I highly recommend checking that out as a companion to this, because we cover some things that we won't cover in this episode, and then there will be things in this episode that enrich what we talked about there.
0: Long story short, the ancient Near East is often portrayed as barbaric and simple, when it comes to film, movie, and television, and comic books, whereas the ancient Greeks and Romans are super sophisticated and smart, and I go on a rant on how that's not really fair and I don't think I agree with it, but before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing.
1: Yeah, so this is going to be a different thing than usual. I'm going to start by plugging a couple of things that we have in the hopper here at The Midnight Myth. First of all, this is episode 199 for The Midnight Myth. We've been doing this for five years, and I cannot believe it. And I'm so grateful that we are still doing it through all of it. We started this as boyfriend and girlfriend in our first home together. And then we got engaged, we got married, we had a baby, you opened a business. We have just seen so much change in our lives, and this has been the one constant it is such a pleasure to do this with you, Derek, and have this be a part of our relationship. And I'm thrilled that we're going to have episode 200 coming next, hopefully sooner than it took us to churn out this one. But as part of episode 200, we are going to release a Q&A. So any questions, any burning questions that you have for us as the Midnight Myth, we encourage you to send those to us. You can either uh, drop us a line on the contact form on our website, midnightmyth.com, or you can head to any of our social media platforms, drop a comment or a DM, and we will check it out and we will do our best to answer everything On the podcast. These could be questions like, how the heck do you do it? How do you find the time to make the podcast? Questions about what equipment we use, questions about a movie that you hope we've seen and maybe you want to know what the mythological references are in it, or anything about our personal life, what it's like to be parents. I am just excited to get to talk to all of you and interface with you, so please head to one of those channels like Twitter at The Midnight Myth, Facebook and Instagram, Midnight Myth Podcast, or our website, MidnightMyth.com.
0: Just throwing this out here, we had not planned this, but should we do one person who gives us a question gets a giveaway?
1: Well, now that you've said it and there's no way I'm editing this out, probably. Yeah, Yeah. Okay, great.
0: Let's do a giveaway. So if you give us your questions, we've already gotten a few. We will put all of the people who ask us questions into a hat, and we're going to do a cool giveaway yet to be determined.
1: Yep, we're going to figure that out right after this. Uh, after we finish recording, we're going to scramble to buy something on Amazon and uh, and figure out what to send you. It'll but be it's nerdy. it's going to be great.
0: It'll be great, and it'll last you the rest of your life.
1: Forever. Um, wonderful. The last thing that I want to plug is you've probably seen it in our feed, the promo for our new podcast project, Sleep and Sorcery. This is a folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep series that I have been working on for the last couple of months that will be released on all podcast platforms in March of 2022. So only a couple more weeks to wait. You can listen to that promo in our feed here at The Midnight Myth, and then you can head over on your favorite podcast player and subscribe to Sleep and Sorcery to start getting those new episodes in just a couple of weeks. This idea came to me as a way to incorporate my love of folklore and fantasy and my deep insomnia. So I hope that it will help you fall asleep while also disappearing into the magical worlds of fantasy literature, medieval legend, folklore, and mythology. It is part bedtime story, part guided meditation, and part dreamy adventure. So I hope to see you there at Sleep and Sorcery.
0: I've gotten to listen to a episode And uh, we put it on last night before it's out. We wanted to test it out to see if it works. And I fell asleep within about five minutes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So hopefully that will work for you as well. But even if it doesn't put you to sleep right away, hopefully the stories will be engaging and get your mind off what is ever keeping you up at night. So I'm very, very excited to get that started. And thank you for coming with me on this journey
0: So one thing before I do the briefest of brief recaps, unlike other MCU properties that we have done, this is the first one where I have read literally zero of the comics. I believe Laurel has read zero of the comics. So this conversation will be focused exclusively on the movie directed by Chloe Zhao. It will not be about the comics, but after seeing this movie now several times, I might have to go Relaunch that Marvel Unlimited and read some of these comics because I've heard Neil Gaiman has a great run, Jack Kirby invented them and has a great run. Anyway, on with the show. Thank you, Laurel. Briefest of brief recaps. The Eternals starts at the beginning of the universe where beings known as Celestials start creating suns, which then create galaxies. The Eternals are sent to Earth by the Celestials in order to battle creatures called Deviants, which are hunting on, feeding, and killing humanity. There are 12 Eternals, and they go at the cradle and dawn of human civilization in ancient Mesopotamia. And not only do they successfully defend the humans from the Deviants, they start sharing secrets and technology, helping human civilization advance and grow. Then they finally get to the point where the Spanish are conquering Mesoamerica and they kill the last of the Deviants. The leader, Ajax, then lets the Eternals go, saying, now that the Deviants are dead, go learn and enjoy and spend some time with these humans who we have saved. There's also a Frisier as one of the characters, Thena. Her mind starts to break down under the weight of the memories and she starts to attack the other Deviants. Another one, Druig, starts to question erishem the prime celestial's mission thinking if we have helped humanity advance all we have done is help them become better killers now in our time we focus on cersei and sprite two of the eternals when a deviant comes back causing them to quote get the band back together again end quote they get together and they find that their leader Ajax had been killed by a deviant only for then cersei to now take her place as the prime eternal This is where we learn the true mission. Erishem created the deviants in order to stop predators from feeding on human or other intelligent life because intelligent life creates energy that feeds unborn celestials that have been embedded inside of planets. The Eternals, their job is to stop the deviants so that intelligent life can grow, so an emergence can occur where the celestial is born out of the planet destroying the planet and all of the intelligent life on there. This is also where we learn that Icarus, the most powerful of the Eternals in a raw strength, he can fly, he's invulnerable, he can shoot lasers from his eyes, kind of reminds you of Superman. Hmm. In fact, they call him Superman in one scene that Icarus actually killed Ajax to protect erisham's mission because ajax wanted to stop the emergence so that she could protect the humans and as a zealot he ends up driving a wedge through the eternals saying that he will protect the emergence where cersei decides she wants to stop ultimately they battle cersei wins she stops the emergence from happening sprite ends up becoming a real human so sprite can grow up And there the movie ends, where we also learn Cersei's boyfriend might have a magical sword with magical powers, her human boyfriend, I might add. Erishem comes back, collects the remaining Eternals, and he will sit and decide humanity's fate now that the emergence has stopped.
1: And in a wonderful post credit scene, we learn that Harry Styles is joining the MCU and cut to black. Excellent recap.
0: A lot happens in this movie. Oh
1: my goodness, so much happens. There's a lot
0: of plot. I decided to tackle the recap linearly because the movie is not told entirely through a linear fashion. There's a lot of flashbacks and whatnot. Um, The movie is very, very new. It's only been out for a year, a little over a year. came out in 2020.
1: 2021.
0: 2021, wow. Time is a flat circle. So it came out in 2021. Here we are in 2022. This is the lowest rated Rotten Tomatoes score MCU movie. A lot of fans did not like it and were very vocal about it. So rather asking if it holds up because it hasn't been out long enough for that question to be relevant. Do you think this movie deserves the ire and the dislike and scorn of the MCU faithful? Short
1: answer, no. I think it gets a bad rap that it doesn't quite deserve. I talk a lot about this in detail in our conversation with Andy and Mike at Geek Salad and- my individual nitpicks and my problems with it, but also that I think this movie is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that comes down to the the watcher, the viewer. Some people will be unable to overcome the the major flaws that it has, but I personally found that it had so much to say and it had so many interesting and ambitious ideas going on that I think it's really a worthwhile experiment. I truly do like this movie I watch it and I get frustrated sometimes by some of the choices. I'm like, ah, if you had just done this, or if you had just gone all in on this, it would have been great. Uh, And that frustration can be hard to overcome. But overall, I think it is, like I said, very worthwhile.
0: I think Marvel has been such a successful brand in small part because of its consistency. And I also think that's one of the shortcomings of the MCU in particular post phase one, which is culminates with the Marvel's, the Avengers that so many of the movies have a similar tone, a similar pace, a similar look. A lot of the heroes have similar arcs dealing with similar problems. A lot of the humor replicates in similar ways and in similar fashions. And in many ways, the MCU fan has come to expect what a Marvel movie looks, feels, and sounds like. And if you are expecting that while going into the Eternals, you're going to be disappointed because it does break that mold. However, for me personally, that mold is a little stale. And I say this as an MCU fan, And but I look at it more like okay yeah let's see the next mcu installment hopefully it'll be fun and then don't need to think about it too much more after that whereas the eternals i was whoa okay this movie is doing some things doing some things very differently down to the core of the movie it's very hard from the beginning where it, when it starts from the the scroll that feels like i'm opening the old testament and reading genesis to when Cersei hands the gold dagger and Pink Floyd starts to play over the Marvel credits. This movie stands apart from the MCU in its very bones, and I think that's part of the reason a lot of fans didn't like it. I do think there are things like misogyny and racism in some of the fans online, it being a diverse cast, it being a cast with characters who are not just straight white men doing straight white men things. Yeah, You know, and I think there is some always in America and I assume probably in other places of the world too, there are going to be trolls that are going to hate that, that are going to call it wokeism and are going to rally against it. But I do think there are some rank and file MCU fans that probably had their heads scratching being like, this didn't look or feel like a Marvel movie and it doesn't. But that is the very thing that I find so refreshing about it. And the thing that I think is so cool is that Marvel allowed this deep into their brand to step so far outside of their formula and tell a very different type of tale. I thought that personally is one of the great strengths of this as a quote unquote Marvel movie.
1: I agree with you. And I do think that call is out there. I don't think you're anywhere near alone in wanting something new, wanting a little more spice, a little more bite, a little more directorial voice from MCU movies. And there have been great successes when that's been allowed in the past like Taika Waititi and Ryan Coogler, for example, as directors who have gone in and added a little bit of their own personality and style on top of the Marvel brand. And the thing is, when you take those chances, when you give directors a little more freedom and creativity, it's not gonna be everyone's vibe. And that's okay if this movie is not your vibe, if its pace is not something that you're down for, if you, again, can't overcome the fact that, yeah, it's overstuffed, there's too many characters. There's too much going on for it to really cohere into something that makes a true amount of sense or closes the circle on the arguments that it's making. For me, though, it gets so close that I can't help but admire it.
0: Absolutely. Like, I want to know more about Gilgamesh and Thena and their relationship.
1: I know, I would watch that Disney Plus series for weeks.
0: I want to know more about Druig and um, Macari, Macari. Yeah. And their relationship and their bond. I want to know, we got to figure out what all of the other Eternals were up to, except for Makari, who just shows up in the third act. She's just been living on this ship buried underground, collecting With artifacts. no
1: DVD player.
0: You know, so I want to know more about these characters, but there is, there is some limitations to what this movie could do With 12 new heroes, a new Marvel mythology linking to the MCU in general and telling a story that's compelling. And that is a lot, you know. And in that respect, there are some fissures in the foundation that you could point to, but ultimately, I think it's successful. And I also, this is just personal opinion, one of the things that bothers me about the MCU is how it tries to shoehorn every movie as a comedy. And not every movie should be, and I like that this movie is not a comedy. There are a few little cheeky jokes here and there, like one or two, but this movie is a drama, straight up. It's drama slash action. It doesn't shoehorn comedy in awkwardly, which is something that the MCU is guilty of. Now, MCU has people like James Gunn and Taika Waititi, great comedic directors, making movies that are comedies first and then Marvel movies second, and that's okay. But there are just other times where I'm like, this humor doesn't make sense in this scene. It feels shoehorned in. And I love that the Eternals does not do that. All right. So enough with comparing the Eternals to the MCU. Give me some of your thoughts on broad strokes, some themes that you hear that you find that you can extrapolate.
1: There are a couple of big high level themes that run through the sort of circulatory system of this movie. One of them that I personally deeply connect with is the theme of motherhood. And I think we see that in a number of the characters who assume maternal roles or are given associations with maternal or fertile energy. I think there is an argument that the film is making about a sort of feminine power and how that compares to a more conventional masculine power, and how that balance, once it's it's out of balance, can really wreak havoc and violence on the earth. There's power and good in both of those energies, but balancing them is extremely important, and we are looking at a universe that has it out of balance, where there is a prime celestial like Eresham, who is associated with masculine energy, Traditionally, masculine energy has a masculine voice and I believe is referred to with he, him, masculine pronouns, but who works violence, works through violence and deception. So I think that's a really interesting thing that that is at the top of the food chain. That's our apex predator, if you will. And yet the rebels at the bottom, the people who are trying to change the system are the women and are the women who are associated with feminine and maternal energy. So I think that is a strong current that runs through it for me. I think we'll talk a little bit about those two characters who are most associated with motherhood, Cersei and Ajax, a little bit, but I wanted to introduce that here at the beginning. I know another one that deeply infuses the story is evolution.
0: I totally agree with that as well. One of the after the sort of intro of the movie, one of the first scenes has Cersei going to a museum where she is a teacher and she walks by a statue of Charles Darwin and uh, introducing evolution as a main theme. We learn that Aresham calls the flaw in his design of the Deviants was that they were uh, they had the ability to evolve And since they evolved, they started becoming better hunters and better predators, and they turned on eating intelligent life instead of eating the things that would eat intelligent life. In other words, the deviants became more predatorial. They evolved to get better. They evolved to find better sources of food and they grew out of his power and his control. Yeah, he lost control of them. And since he lost control, he needed to check that. So he created the Eternals as beings immune to evolution because they don't age, they don't reproduce. Assume, we do see them in romantic relationships, but we can assume that they aren't able to have children. Um, I, I get that sense. They don't explicitly say that. And as ageless beings that do not reproduce, they are now immune from biological evolution, and hence they can fall within the sphere of the control of Erishim. If they evolve, he cannot control. If they don't evolve, he can control. So very much Erishim exists in a world where evolution happens organically. Yes, they have created suns, the celestials, according to the myth. Um, that we see in the beginning and yes the suns form planets but life intelligent life seems to come by its own natural biological process because there is intelligent life in the universe he can plant eggs that intelligent life can feed the celestials so there needs to be catalysts to evolution intelligent life needs to get to a point where it can thrive to feed the egg and since it can thrive to feed the egg well the eternals aid humanity in what Fastos calls technology is an essential function of their evolution. The word comes back. So humans need to evolve technologically so that they can feed the egg. Furthermore, uh, Erishim describes the universe as a constant transference of energy. Energy goes and gets recycled from one form to another. And what we see in this movie is when they combine all of their quote-unquote energies, they're able to stop the emergence from happening. Cersei is able to use the Unamind to essentially kill the new celestial growing in Earth. I think it's called Tiamat. Tiamat, yeah. In this, we see the stopping of evolution, the control of evolution by Cersei.
1: At the same time, you're watching the Eternals evolve, right? So they are artificial. They're non-organic people who were made synthetic organisms by Arishem so that he could control them. And while they cannot physically evolve to become apex predators per se, they can't necessarily do survival of the fittest because they are already kind of perfect and they don't age. There's no physical evolution associated with them. But once that is taken away, there is still this sort of psychological, philosophical uh, evolution that they're able to explore. We know that they have been reborn thousands of times, and that their memories have been wiped from all their other encounters. But this time on earth, they've made a different choice because they have philosophically, psychologically evolved to have a new moral system or have new beliefs and to find their own free will. They were made without free will and they find free will. It's the classic, like, if we design robots, will they become conscious? The Eternals have become conscious in this reincarnation of their existence, which is really fascinating to watch that change. I think that's really interesting. And I want to draw back quickly to uh, that first scene after the intro, once the credits have rolled and we're in the museum and Cersei is going to teach her class, Dane Whitman has been sitting, Dane, is his name really Dane Whitman? Yes. He's in there reading Whitman. He's in there reading Walt Whitman. I'm just like finally putting all this together. He's quoting Leaves of Grass. So right after Darwin, as we're going into this class for Circe to teach about evolution, we're hearing poetry. And we're hearing poetry from Leaves of Grass and who's considered the greatest American poet or the American poet, a poet who is America. And this collection of poems, Leaves of Grass, is often cited for its deep sensuality, its connection to phenomenology, the phenomenal world and humanity and this deep well of admiration for the things that are natural and human and earthly. And so I think that is connected to the theme of evolution because evolution isn't just about survival of the fittest. Evolution isn't just about finding your way to the top of the food chain. It's also about becoming more. It's also about finding access to Plato's forms, if you will, to the truth and beauty and justice and love in the world, those things that are intangible and inaccessible and we're just in our animal instinct.
0: Yeah, what is the end of evolution? Is it to become the apex predator as we see in the way that the deviants have evolved and will evolve and how they actively evolve in this movie? Is it simply to transfer energy as using the Eternals as a food source so that they can then absorb their powers, get stronger, and just dominate? Is it to be an Icarus, to just be on the top telling others what to do, that they don't have the power to stop you? Or is the purpose of evolution to grow into sentient, intelligent life that can appreciate beauty and justice and philosophy and music and science and all of these other aspects That we see that humanity has evolved, which has inspired the Eternals to become their defenders rather than their destructors. You know, Cersei says something in the very beginning about the apex predator. The one thing that sets them apart is there are no other animals in their habitat that can hunt them. And when we think of the universe as a transference of energy, what is... And what are the celestials, if not the apex predator? What have they evolved to do? Cersei also calls their way cold and violent and brutal and archaic, ancient. yeah. Yeah, archaic, pardon me. She calls it archaic. Simply to grow intelligent life just so you can have a new celestial to grow intelligent life so you can have a new celestial?
1: Yeah, sell me the purpose of that. I I need to know more about why that's not just a recycling of energy. I need to know what the moral argument or the moral imperative of that is.
0: And the reality of that is that I think what the movie is saying is that the, the celestials are nothing more than the most evolved predator. There's nothing in the habitat that can hunt them so they feed on worlds. And that is all that they do. They are the devourer of worlds so that they can be reborn to make new worlds so that they can be reborn again and again and again. And if no true values emerge out of that, all you have is a transference of energy. You don't have any better aesthetic or moral or um, scientific or technological systems that evolve with you. Once you get to that point, if you are unwilling to, to adapt, and to change. If all you are is a celestial whose job it is to feed on planets, then you become an apex predator. And what we see in the Eternals as free independent agents is revolting against this design.
1: Amazing. I just want to bring in one little thing that that pinged in my mind when we were talking about fatherhood and motherhood and comedy and tone. And I think it's relevant And that's that I was listening recently to an episode of In Our Time, a BBC podcast hosted by Melvin Bragg, where he brings on scholars. And it was about Romeo and Juliet. And I love listening when they talk about Shakespeare because they bring in these really amazing scholars on the texts. And one of them, and I'll, I'll find out the name of this scholar and credit them in the show notes, said something about comedy and tragedy and how, especially with regard to Romeo and Juliet, Comedy is what happens when the dads get out of the way. They make room for uh, mayhem and mischief. And tragedy is what happens when the dads get too involved. That's what happens in Romeo and Juliet. This ancient feud fuels the death of children. And in Eternals, the over-heavy hand of this controlling fatherly figure, this this, uh, heavenly father, this god figure who is masculine... Uh, becomes the agent of violence and tragedy upon the earth, but it's the mothers who fight back.
0: And I love that. And I like how the characters slowly come to the realization that Tiamat must be destroyed. At first, when they first decide that they're going to rebel against the design, it is to delay the emergence until they can find a way to get Tiamat out of earth without destroying it. That is their goal, going into the third act, going into the final battle, which is to use the Unamind and Druig's power to put Tiamat to sleep so that they can then figure out a a way to have the emergence happen, but happen peacefully. It is only through the violence of Icarus, the violence of the masculine energy, that they realize the only choice they have is to kill Tiamat is to abort the Celestial Baby. Yeah, It is their last and final option. They cannot go any other direction. So it's worth noting that they don't just flip a switch and rebel against Erishim whole cloth. They work their way incrementally until they say, you know what, there's nothing else we can do. Even then, one of their own, uh, Kingo, does not go along with them which when I first saw that was a baffling choice. But as I meditate on it, I actually think it's very cool. The shame is that's one of the best characters in the Eternals. And he
1: disappears from the third act. And he's
0: not there for the final battle, would have liked to have seen him return. But it makes sense in invariably when there's conflict, in particular conflict among family, there are going to be those that want to sit out. There are going to be those that are going to say, listen, I actually agree that the Celestial should be born. I think that Erishim's design is correct. However, I don't want this planet to be destroyed and nor am I willing to take up arms against my fellow Eternals in order to get either outcome. And him just saying, this is it, I'm out. I will not fight Icarus, nor will I fight Cersei. I don't think we have the right to question our purpose but I also am not gonna take up arms. I'm gonna go back to India and spend time with the people that I love, which I think thematically does make sense that there will be those that are going to be in the middle of two different extreme views, especially when it is familial in nature.
1: It's very interesting to hear that argument articulated, even though I wish that it was fleshed out a little bit more. It's also just a shame that Kumail Nanjiani got so ripped for this sh- this movie, and never got to take his shirt off. Pour one out for Kumail's abs.
0: Indeed, one of the greatest tragedies of the era that we're living through right this now. This is true. That we did not get to see him with his shirt out. One thing I think might be fun to do, since myth is in our name of our podcast, is talk about how these characters um, in this movie inspire and are drawn from myths. So when they wrote these characters, what myths were they drawing from? And what myths do these characters then inspire in this world might be fun.
1: I would love to do that. I want to kind of run through it quickly because I know we could easily spend 10 hours talking about each of the myths associated. I think there are some that we want to flesh out more. But how about we run through each character and talk briefly about who their inspiration is? Would, yeah. would you like to start with the prime Ajax? Sure. That corresponds to Ajax from the Iliad by Homer clearly has been reappropriated or uh, resituated as a woman in this universe. I believe in the comics Ajax is a man, and so this was a choice made by the movie, and I think Salma Hayek plays this character very well and is an extremely giving and powerful and amazing being that I appreciate. Uh, we can also talk about Circe. I think Circe is a really interesting one to talk about because her name very clearly connotes Circe, also from Homer, from the Odyssey, who is the witch who enchants Odysseus's men and who keeps him sort of prisoner on that island for a long time. But there is this sense of desire about it. I think that's an interesting comparison because Circe has this magic in her. She's able to transmute. She's sort of an alchemist in a way. She transmutes these non-sentient beings or non-sentient materials or elements, and then becomes able to bewitch actual sentient beings, which is amazing. But I also think she connotes Ceres from Greek mythology because of all of the irrigation she's involved in, the farming, the cultivation of the land that she's part of in the early civilizations in Babylon. There is a lot about her that is associated with these mother goddesses, these earth goddesses, these goddesses of harvest, hearth, and home of fertility and fecundity. So I think those are two goddesses that she's associated with.
0: Sure. Um, one thing I'll say about Ajax as well is she also represents a lot of Mother or Earth goddesses. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, um, Demeter in her. Even though we don't see her you know, literally irrigating fields the way Cersei does, when she decides to retire, where is she at? She's at a farm. I think that's an interesting place to put her so that she's close to the Earth. She's associated with the Earth. It is ultimately her desire to protect humanity that leads the Eternals on the quest to stopping the birth of Tiamat and defining Erishem after she had helped destroy millions of planets over millions of years. It is earth that changes her mind that makes her want to then defend humanity rather than destroy them. So I think in that respect, we can see her as a lot of different earth goddesses.
1: I agree. And Ajak and Cersei are certainly positioned as these parallel figures as one matriarch who passes down the torch to the next matriarch creating this matriarchal site society of eternals, which I love. We also have Thena who is of course associated with Athena, the goddess of war in Greek mythology or uh, Minerva in Roman mythology.
0: She also has a spear and shield that mimics the hoplite formation, which is the way that ancient Greeks fought. There's a great shot when she's attacking the like prime deviant at the end where she literally has the shield and she puts the spear on top of it and she jumps and it looks like it could be and the smoke and lighter behind it and it looks like that could have come directly from a piece of greek pottery yeah it's the way really that well shot done. is done yeah. They even call her the goddess of war, the defender of Athens.
1: The kid so, calls her Athena, and she's like, "No, it's just Athena. It's just
0: Athena." Drop A- the A, absolutely. And so she she associated with that. And then you know, Athena, the goddess, is also associated with womanly home goods. Yeah, there's the myth between her and Arachne, where she outspuns Arachne, yeah, the and then weaving turns her competition. Yeah. So, and there's this al- other element of connection to the earth. Um, That is there. So yeah, Athena, Athena, got it.
1: Love it. We have Kingo, who the closest parallel that I was able to find is Kingu from Babylonian mythology. There's not a ton of real parallels there except for the name and the fact that Kingu in Babylonian mythology is the son of the goddess Tiamat, who is a creator deity, Uh, from Babylon. So that is an interesting connection. In the comics, I do believe he's portrayed mostly as a samurai. So he was also uh, created in a new form or a new light in this film and integrated with Kumail Nanjiani's identity. So uh, very interesting parallel there, but not a ton of real crossover between the mythology and the character that I could find.
0: I also think with Kingo, with his ability to kind of shoot lasers from his hands, there is a connection that I could draw loosely to both Zeus and Thor. Yeah. In fact, he mentions that he knew Thor as a child. That's a good point. And Thor used to follow him around, and now Thor won't return his phone calls. So that ability to summon energy from your hands and shoot it at your enemies is something Thor shoots lightning from... His hammer, Uh, Zeus has command of the thunderbolt. And you you can kind of see that because his power is very much attached to shooting things from his hands.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. Though,
0: I think there is a better Zeus parallel and that is definitely in Icarus.
1: Yes, Icarus, his name is drawn from Icarus, from Greek mythology, the son of Daedalus, who was the artificer for King Minos who built, among other things, the wooden bull that led to the conception of the, the Minotaur and then the labyrinth that contained the Minotaur to keep it from slaughtering all the people of Crete. So Icarus is his son. He is most associated with the, uh, the myth in which Daedalus is imprisoned and he builds these wings out of feathers and wax so that they can fly away and escape. And Icarus, flies too close to the sun, the sun melts the wax, and he falls into the sea and dies. So often when you hear his name repeated or you hear the words fly too close to the sun, it's associated with pride, with hubris, and often used in a modern context to say this person bit off way more than they could chew or thought they were more powerful than they were and ended up in great tragedy.
0: Absolutely. And they even joke that Sprite made up this myth to kind of knock Icarus down a little bit and spread this a way that this movie has the intersection of history, myth, and events and the way that it plays with those knowledge systems. Sprite, the trickster, ends up sprinkling this in. But uh, there's absolutely a Zeus parallel as well to Icarus where he is powerful, he is masculine, he is dominant and he is not afraid to use force to get what he wants, and he is kind of tyrannical. He's also a zealot when he makes up his mind. There's no moving his mind, and he will kill whoever he has to kill to get what he wants. That makes him feel a little bit like that angry, cantankerous, mean and violent Zeus to me.
1: I think he also has a lot of energy from the Old Testament of the Bible. You you just mentioned that he's a zealot, And that's truly his only moral argument, his only moral stake in the argument that's in the film. He doesn't truly care about humanity. He cares about Cersei, and she cares about humanity. He is single-mindedly carrying out the purpose of his God unquestioningly. And there is a sense of, I will do anything for my God and I will not... Uh, allow my own connection to uh, this world develop because it gets in the way of my God. So there's a lot of, I think, Old Testament Christianity baked into that character as well.
0: Not to mention Judaism as well. Yeah,
1: Judeo-Christianity.
0: And uh, all the Abrahamic faiths because the modern Islam does recognize the Old Testament as a legitimate religious book. Great point. Absolutely. Let's go to Makari.
1: Makari. So the closest parallel for her is Mercury. Also from Greek and Roman mythology, Hermes in Greek mythology, the messenger god, also a bit of a trickster. So I like that they turned her into a speedster who's able to do these incredible feats, but also plays a lot of tricks and is is sort of a, a funny character in a way.
0: Absolutely. And Mercury had sandals with wings, so Mercury could yeah. fly all around super fast, the same way that Macari can. And Makari, one of the characters that I think gets a little short end of the stick here, would have liked to have seen more. Let's talk about then Druig.
1: Yeah, Druig, his name very clearly connotes the Druids, uh, who we don't know very much about. Our basic perception of them is that they were ancient on the, typically on the British Isles and Western Europe, and that they were, uh, man, how do I describe Druids?
0: Well, we know almost nothing about them, because they never wrote anything down. Exactly. And their way of life was mostly snuffed out at the emergence of Christianity. But they are essential religious figures that they are the center of their communities. They are sought to have secret knowledge and wisdom, and that they were people that were revered among, in particular, ancient Celtic peoples, so ancient people of Ireland, Britain, etc. not in the Romanized. The Romans wrote of the Druids that they encountered them and they thought that they were weird and mysterious and they did not like them and they saw them as a threat. Beyond that, we don't know too much, but what does Druid do? Goes into the Amazon, forms a community, protects it, and he kind of even dresses like a Druid does with long robes, like we imagine a Druid in long robes with a big beard, you know, sitting on a hilltop above ancient people who are living simply. So he definitely echoes the the druids.
1: Yeah. How about Sprite?
0: Sprite to me is an interesting one. So Sprite is definitely has some trickster energy in in her. Sprite is literally called Tinkerbell by Kingo, and that Tinkerbell doesn't age, but is in love with Peter, but can never have Peter the way she loves Icarus. Another way where they myth and legend and story kind of intertwine in this film and sprite to me also connotes the the literal fairies and sprites and hobbits and gnomes smaller people who look eternally young elves who kind of can play tricks and illusions on people who are not necessarily all good or all evil but can vacillate back and forth Sprite seems like very much one of the good guys in the beginning of this movie. And in the end, she's stabbing Cersei in the back in order to end the world because she's jealous that she doesn't age.
1: Yeah, which feels very in line with the sort of fairy legends that you'll get in Ireland or Britain Or in Iceland and the Scandinavian countries, all kinds of cultures have these sort of trickster figures who will steal your children or will create illusions and get you trapped in their world forever.
0: Or you'll have a great time and they'll teach you some secret knowledge that you didn't have and you'll go back to the world, the regular world. There you go. There's also in the Middle East, there's the jinn that are illusionists that have immense power, but you can't really trust them that exist in between with one foot in the spirit world and one foot in the material world. So I think Sprite kind of represents all of these. Yeah. I think we've hit everybody except the one I'm most excited to talk about. We have not
1: hit Fastos.
0: Oh, how could I forget Fastos?
1: Fastos, I love. Brian Tyree Henry is just chewing the scenery and he's one of those examples of a character who's able to be really, really funny and also really emotionally raw and authentic, and I just really appreciate his performance in this. I think there are two figures from mythology and legend that he corresponds to. I'll talk about the first one, which is Dr. Faustus, or Faust, who in legend was an alchemist and struck a deal with the devil in the form of Mephistopheles, a servant of Satan, for infinite knowledge. And he gave his soul to Mephistopheles in return. So he gains all of this knowledge and then like Icarus kind of flies too close to the sun and it's a tragedy of Dr. Faustus. So I think that that alchemy is tied with Fastos' character because he's the technologist, he's the inventor, he's the one who is constantly pushing evolution on and teaching them how to split atoms and whatnot. That is very much an alchemical uh enterprise. So I think that is one place where he's connected. Do you want to talk about the other character he is associated with? Hephaestus yeah. from
0: Greek myth, who yeah. is the maker of the Olympians, who is is—he's the blacksmith. Yeah. Who gets thrown from the mountaintop by Hera. I believe it is. Who's mad. Yeah. And because of that walks with a limp, he ends up m- being married to Aphrodite, even she's a terrible wife to him. And his job is to make all of the things that gods need and that gods use. So he is a great craftsman and maker and technologist of Olympia. And the way that we see Fastos in the movie use his hands to kind of manipulate technology feels very much like a god tinkering with the molecules of the universe to create and make things. It is Fastos who makes the plow for humanity, which did bother me, but that's I rant about that at the Geek, Geek Salad. Salad. So go check out their YouTube channel if you want to hear my rant about the plow. But he ultimately ends up walking away from humanity after Hiroshima and Nagasaki get nuked in World War II and thinks, I have done this. Technology has become bad. And then he comes back to make the Unimine. So yes, Vastos is a great builder and technologist. Also slight remnants of the dwarves of Norse mythology. Yeah, sure. Who make all of the weapons for the gods as well. Though the dwarves can't really be trusted in Norse myth, they are somewhat devious and not really nice. Whereas I think Faustos does not carry that sort of negative connotation. The dwarves are also called the dark elves of Norse myth as well.
1: And something that is uh, common across all of this is that these characters are all together through all of these great civilizations. So they're in Babylon together and presumably they're in ancient Greece together at one point. And there are these parallels across all different cultures that are associated with similar qualities. The fact that Norse mythology and Greek mythology both have craftsmen associated with them, and certainly that is a part of other world mythologies as well. The basic idea is that all of these were inspired by the same actual people, synthetic people.
0: And in our own world, there is evidence to suggest through the study of ancient language that many of the ancient deities that we see in different peoples had similar roots where? In the ancient Near East where civilization started and spread out and the tales of these gods spread out. A good example of this is that there's strong evidence to suggest the goddess Ishtar linguistically is linked to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And Ishtar is the goddess of love in ancient Babylonian and ancient Mesopotamian where the goddess of love is also the goddess of love in ancient Greek, which then goes on to form Venus, the goddess of love of the ancient Romans. And where do we see our heroes in this movie fighting when they're in Babylon? Right in front of the Ishtar Gate. Yeah. The Ishtar Gate being the famous gate of Babylon that would open up during the festival of Marduk and the king would parade through and be worshiped as a living God. And they do a great job recreating this in this movie and placing a battle there between all of the the Eternals, but there's one Eternal that's front and center in front of that, and that is my man, Gilgamesh. Saved for the end, because the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast is to talk about Gilgamesh. Yes. That's my secret plan. I've wanted to talk about Gilgamesh on this podcast. For five years. Since we've started, haven't figured out a way to do it, and here there is a character in pop culture called Gilgamesh So we have to talk about Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh, one of my favorite of the Eternals. I loved his character in this, but let's talk about the mythological character in a little more detail of Gilgamesh, where it came from, how it came to be an Eternal. And uh, uh, Gilgamesh is based off of the character, a real story called, we now commonly call the Epic of Gilgamesh. Fun fact, the oldest known recorded piece of literature is a tablet found in ancient Mesopotamia and inscribed in ancient writing is the story of Gilgamesh. Many parts of the tablet have been broken off, so the story is not complete, but is the oldest known work of literature. And because there are religious connotations, it's the second oldest piece of recorded religious literature as well. So it has two honorifics to it. It is roughly dated to 2100 BCE before the common era. So that is uh, almost 4,000 years old at this point. So very ancient. A caveat when discussing ancient history, in particular history, this ancient, everything that ancient historians know is true up until the moment where it's not true meaning there are more gaps that we don't know than we do know. And when new evidence emerges, we have to rethink our relationship to ancient history. That being said, some things that I will discuss is what I was taught. It's been a long time since I was in a classroom studying ancient history. So things may have changed since then. The story of Gilgamesh in the tablet, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, is about a king of Uruk. Uruk at this time was the most powerful city-state of ancient Mesopotamia, which was very much a city-state, sort of the way we think of the Greeks. Each little city is its own state with its own reach. By the time of the third dynasty of Ur, or the third dynasty of Urex, or the third kingship, it had emerged to a superpower where several city-states were under its sphere. This is the seeds of what would eventually become the ancient empires, which would then give way to eventually the modern nation-states that we have today. Now, Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk, and he is a terrible king and is a tyrant, and the people are suffering under his tyranny, so they pray to the gods who create Enkidu to be a check on Gilgamesh's power. Gilgamesh and Enkidu, they fight. Gilgamesh ultimately wins, but at the end, they hug it out and become best friends and decide that they're going to go on adventures. They go into a cedar forest, and they confront the guardian of a sacred tree called Humumba, a giant, and they defeat this giant. this ticks off the gods. But Ishtar, the goddess of love, is like, yo, they killed this giant. I want to marry Gilgamesh. And proposes a union between Gilgamesh and Ishtar, which he rebukes. She is angered. The gods realize that a mortal cannot refuse a god. So they send a bull, which kills Enkidu. This is Gilgamesh's first experience with death And the loss of Enkidu prompts him to grieve. And he goes on a quest to try to find what? Eternal life. This quest, he meets someone that actually has a plant that will grant eternal life. And Gilgamesh is taught how to retrieve this plant. But ultimately, he fails to bring this plant home. And he returns home to Uruk and decides, if I can't live eternally, and I can't be a tyrannical bad king, and I can't be with Enkidu, what can I do? I can become a good king, and he ends up ruling Uruk as a good and wise king, which is one of the reasons Uruk, in the mythic sense, goes on to become one of the earliest versions of what would become ancient Mesopotamian empires. It's a beautiful story. It is awesome to read. Highly recommend, if you haven't ever read it, to read it. I'll give you just one quote, and this is at the end When Gilgamesh is recognizing his quest for eternal life will fail. Life which you look for, and in that that you is Gilgamesh, life which you look for you will never find. For when the gods created man they let death be his share and life withheld in their own hands. Love it. One of the things that we see in the story of Gilgamesh is it's about taking your responsibilities in the mortal plane seriously. It's about what does it take to become a good and just king and that it is important when you have power that you wield it well and that you recognize your own mortality that you recognize that you are human and you will die the quest for eternal life will ultimately on this world will never succeed the only way you can get to eternal life is through your death and rebirth in the afterlife in the transference of energy, as Erishem would say. One of the things that I like that they do with this character, one, we have a character, Gilgamesh, defeating a Deviant in front of the Ishtar Gate, and in the next scene, we have Sprite telling the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, creating the Deviant as sort of the Enkidu to this, and it is Gilgamesh who deals the last blow to that deviant, and it is Gilgamesh that goes on to fund the story. Now, that takes place at 575 BC. Yeah, that ain't right. And the epic of Gilgamesh was written down approximately at 2100 BC. So they get the dates completely off. By the time that Babylon had these great gates and the hanging gardens of Babylon, there were already a very advanced civilization.
1: Yeah, there was already the Gilgamesh expanded universe by then.
0: (laughs) Yes, and it was all interconnected and people were amazed by it. Yeah. No, you're being cheeky. Gilgamesh was a foundational myth that everyone presumably would have known. We assume that. Otherwise, why would you take the time to literally carve it into stone if it wasn't important to you? That takes a lot of work. It's not like someone just jotted it down on a piece of paper. They literally carved it into a tablet. And I think of how this movie deals with the quest for eternal life. Well, You have characters who are eternal, but they can die. They will not age. They will not evolve. They are presumably immune to disease and decay the way that regular people are, but they can actually be killed, but it has to be killed violently. And that Gilgamesh, the paragon of strength, the paragon of tyranny, turned to a good king. What do we see Gilgamesh do? What is his most natural role? Well, yes, he is a warrior, but he is also a caretaker. And he also decides to lay down his arms to spend time with his best friend, Thena, and to protect her from herself as her memories are fracturing.
1: Even though they fight sometimes, even though this is born out of her trying to kill everyone, just as the friendship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu is born out of a battle. I think that's
0: great. So many ancient myths are about understanding a harmonious relationship with a sort of natural and right order. And you had started this Laurel by saying, one of the things that is in in balance in this movie is the masculine and feminine energies. And in the character Gilgamesh, we see these in a good, healthy balance. We see someone with tremendous power, but doesn't want to use it tyrannically only to defend. We see someone that could go out and punch his way to anyone and get whatever he wants, but decides to take care of a sick friend to make sure that she is okay.
1: And he practices traditional feminine domesticity, these things that don't naturally have to be associated with women, but have societally been associated with women, cooking and entertaining and caring for parties of people.
0: And in the end, his desire to serve others leads him to lay his life down to protect Thena, lay his own life down to protect others. And in that, I think Gilgamesh encapsulates, I think, everything that's great about this movie, as well as touching upon this incredibly ancient, one of the oldest stories, the literally oldest written down story of human history, Now, could there have been other stories that were written down before Gilgamesh that did not survive? Yes. So is it the first that was ever written down? Sadly, we'll never know, but it was so important to the people of the ancient Near East that they carved it into clay. We cannot say that about other myths or stories. We cannot say that about whether or not Ishtar and Aphrodite are real, but we can say that about Gilgamesh because the ancient People were concerned with the harmonious relationship between a king and his people, between a king and the gods, between the balance between life and death and how to preserve that balance and to maintain it. And what do the Eternals do? They preserve life on earth. They restore the masculine and the feminine energies and they delay the apocalypse.
1: And as powerful as they are, they still find themselves subject to insecurity about How power and justice can coincide, how you can be a prime eternal, how you can be a servant of the prime celestial, and also be a just server of the people of Earth. And this movie is life affirming in every way. This movie deals with the question of do you prioritize the lives that are already on this planet, or do you weigh? the billions of lives that could be created in the future as the same or greater significance. And I think this movie makes a very powerful argument, even if it's not articulated with the most elegance, that you need to prioritize the people who are here now. And that, when you apply that to the abortion debate, you used the word abort earlier about the celestial seed, and I think that was appropriate. When you apply it to that debate, you have to think about how a lot of legislation, and currently right now there are so many states that are introducing or passing legislation that, that takes away a woman's right to choose, that takes away a birthing parent's right to make decisions about their own body, you see that this movie says the mother earth life is as important or more important than the potential life. And I think that is a very powerful statement to
0: make. I do too. And I, read, I will expand on that in purely not in the contemporary politics, but in the myth. Is there any reason to suspect that Erishim is actually going to create more life with the destruction of Earth? He has
1: already lied to us for thousands of years.
0: He is at his core a deceiver.
1: I want to throw in one more mythological parallel, not with a character, but with an artifact that's introduced within this movie, which I love. And for eagle-eyed alchemy nerds like me, people were probably like, oh, my God, they're talking about the Emerald Tablet. And so I'm going to talk about the Emerald Tablet a little bit. It shows up in uh, it's referenced early on in the movie when the characters are in Babylon by uh, Druig and Makari, as Makari is trying to make a trade for artifacts. And the characters that she's trading with say that emerald tablet you're looking for is a myth. And then later on in the movie, when we see Makari on the ship, the Domo, she actually has the emerald tablet in her possession. So what is the emerald tablet? If you've never heard about it, it can be a little bit confusing to try to understand it because there's a, a real history and there's also a legendary history around it. So the way we understand it, The physical emerald tablet that we have in our possession today is just a text that was supposedly translated off of an emerald tablet, uh, an actual piece of green stone carved into this piece of precious green stone uh, that possibly in some legends fell from the skies to earth. And what we have today surviving is a text that was translated from that stone and attributed to the author Hermes Trismegistus. This guy maybe existed, but also maybe didn't. He is a figure who is notable in alchemy and Hermeticism, which is an esoteric tradition named after him. And he was either a real guy who was Hermes thrice great, that's the, uh, the official translation of Trismegistus, or he's a sort of euhemorized figure who is born out of Hermes, the Greek god, and possibly Egyptian gods like Thoth, We don't know, but the text supposedly is a step-by-step how-to for creating the philosopher's stone, the magnum opus, or the great work of every alchemist. It's supposed to be able to transmute base metals into gold and potentially provide eternal life. Was there actually an emerald tablet that this was translated from? Again, we don't know. But in Eternals, that emerald tablet is physically real. One of the things that's on that tablet, once translated into English, becomes the well-known phrase, as above, so below, which is associated with alchemy a lot. And it essentially says that the things that happen on the earth and things that happen in the heavens are mirrors of each other. So everything that happens on earth is a copy of the divine existence of it in heaven. That's a really basic way to describe it, but I think has some implications for Eternals as well. I wanted to bring that in because I'm a nerd and I loved seeing an emerald tablet referenced, but I've also referenced alchemy a bunch of times during this podcast. I think Circe is an alchemist in a way. I think Fastos is an alchemist in a way. And I think the search for eternal life keeps coming up in this conversation, as well as the idea of the phenomenal world being subject to change and the ability to transform the world in your image.
0: Absolutely. Cersei is 100% an an alchemist. She's totally an alchemist. Yeah, she can turn water into wine. She can turn gold into lead. She's like, I could turn 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 a rock
1: into metal. And it's like, girl, alchemists have been trying to do that for a long time.
0: And they haven't figured it out. One last thing I'd like to bring up to a little philosophy here. And I want to talk briefly about Rene Descartes. Now, René Descartes lived in the 17th century, very famous philosopher, coined the phrase, I think, therefore I am, also made several important mathematical discoveries as well. Now, one thing that where I think, therefore I am came from is a epistemological framework. In case you're not familiar with that term, epistemology comes from ancient Greece, and it's the study of knowledge. It's asking the question, how do we know what we know? Where does knowledge come from? And if we say that we know something, do we really know it, or are we making it up? Now, the Cartesian epistemological framework is called the Cartesian circle. Sorry to say that word twice. And it goes something like this, and I will caveat, it has been a long time since I've read Descartes, and I am doing this from memory, so forgive me any errors. Except
1: we do read our baby a, like baby philosophy book called Imagination with Rene Descartes. We have a whole series of philosophy books for him. So we are familiar with that, but go ahead.
0: So how it works like this. How did Descartes come up with, I think, therefore I am? Well, I think, therefore I am, Descartes would call a clear and distinct perception. But how do we know if clear and distinct perceptions are true? Are they valid? Could they be misleading? So it goes like this. If God exists and is not a deceiver, then clear and distinct perceptions are true, comma, clear and distinct perceptions are true because God exists and is not a deceiver. And this forms a bit of a logical circle. The critique of this is that you have a antecedent, a thought before, and then a consequent. So you have an antecedent, then a consequent, an idea, and then the consequence of the idea. Logically, people have said you can't use the consequent as the antecedent of your next thought. Meaning, if I say God exists, if God exists and is no deceiver, then clear distinct perceptions are true. I cannot use God existing and not a deceiver to prove that clear and distinct perceptions are true. It's a bit of a circular form of logic.
1: It's also a heck of a lot to take on faith, which is absolutely what that is, God existing and being no deceiver. That logical proof doesn't really pan
0: out. If this is true, then the idea is that it proves that God exists and is not a deceiver. Right. The idea is if I can see something, feel something, I can perceive it, it is clear, it is so clear it is self-evident, then that must prove that God exists and is not deceiving me. One of the questions that he was trying to answer is, what happens if God is, dece- is deceptive? Then our clear and distinct perceptions cannot be trusted. And what do we have in the Eternals? We have a God, a creator God, apparently the creator of light and heat in the universe, who is a deceiver, who is trying to deceive others, who is withholding the truth, which means the clear, if the Cartesian circle is correct, then clear and distinct perceptions cannot be true. Some other fun things, the Cartesian circle, much debated whether it's true or not, but it is a circle. Where do, where does all of the technology arise from? Circles and spheres. The very first shot is of the sun, a circle and sphere. The galaxies represent circles. They have circles all on their costumes. And their power
1: sets are represented by these concentric circles. They
0: make they make bracelets which form a circle, which they stand in a circle to fi- form the Unamind. So we see all of this circular imagery, but what we see these characters go through epistemologically is, okay, erishim has been lying to us. We have another purpose okay, well, let's delay what that purpose is until we figure this out. Okay, we can't delay that purpose, so what do we have to do? We have to smash the circle. And the next step for me, philosophically, where these eternal characters would end up is, how do we know if anything's true? Our entire purpose has been a lie. God has deceived us. God has tricked us into thinking we are something that we're not to the point where he's implanted false memories of a planet called Olympia that doesn't exist, that the very enemy that they're trying to destroy is a creation as well of their deity, and the fact that protecting humanity was only a way to transfer their energy to a new celestial. And if God is a deceiver, then your clear and distinct perceptions cannot be true, which means you have no knowledge all of your knowledge, everything that you've based your knowledge upon crumbles. And where do we go next?
1: Whew, Eternals (laughs) 2.
0: The search for more truth.
1: I love it. I know that we're pushing up on time. The baby's gonna wake up soon. I have loved this conversation. It's been extremely joyful. We hit history, mythology, and philosophy and more. And I would love to close with the quote that Dane Whitman was reading from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I should also say that we are recording this from the Whitman neighborhood in Philadelphia. So he is a poet deeply associated with our region and someone who means a lot to us. So I'm just gonna read a quote from Leaves of Grass to close us out today. In this broad earth of ours, amid the measureless grossness and the slag, enclosed and safe within its central heart, Nestles the seed of perfection.
0: Until next time, be calm.